Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I will be uh, doing what Rob's been doing um, for most of this series and reading the scripture as part of the as part of the sermon, so I won't read it ahead at this time. Um, but it is in your bulletin for you to follow along, and I'll make sure I tell you which portions I'm reading and when, so you can do so if you'd like to. Um, but so this summer we've been doing a Forged in Faith ser sermon series, and I should say we, as in Rob, has been doing it with the Eight of Harris last week, um, and it's it's been a neat sermon series, I think, because. Uh, a lot of times we kind of ignore the Old Testament. Um, it's just real different, right, than the New Testament. The New Testament tends to be a little bit more um, obviously uplifting, uh, and the Old Testament has some stories that maybe we don't uh, like to read because we don't really know what to do with them. Uh, but through the stories of the Old Testament, through the people uh, in the Old Testament, the people of God, we see how God has made his people Israel, how he has forged a people for himself that has led to God's people today, us. The people who are sitting here in church, the people who are outside of these walls who are believers. We are all people of God. And so the stories of the Old Testament are also our stories. And I know Rob said that, I think, at his, in his first Forged with Faith uh, sermon. Uh, but, but they've made us, they've, they're part of who we are. Um, you can't have ancestors that don't influence who you are today, even if you don't see it directly. So last week, Harris preached um, a sermon using Samuel and Hannah's story. And Samuel was a judge and a prophet during the time when there were no kings uh, initially. And he was told to anoint a king. He was told to anoint the king Saul. We're not going to talk about Saul today. We're going to actually skip Saul a little bit, but he is part of our story. Um, and then he was told to anoint David, King David, and that's who we're going to really focus on today. So David's life was truly one that was forged in faith. His name actually means beloved. He was beloved by God. And uh, God himself said that he was a man after God's own heart. This is how special David was. Uh, from a young age, he stood out. He was anointed by Samuel when he was just 15 years old while Saul was still king. So they didn't even wait, right? And typically, I mean, y'all have watched movies. You know some history. Usually the next king is a family member. You know, the prince would become king. And Saul did have a son. He had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend. But God chose David, and so that's unusual, right, that it would skip the successor, the, the, the genealogical successor. So he's anointed by Samuel at just 15 years old. He delivered food and supplies to the soldiers in camp while he was still too young to actually go to war himself. He was willing to do that. Um, even if you're not in war, uh, you can imagine that going to a war-torn place, going into battle to take stuff to camp, that's not necessarily safe either. Even that involves risk. He faced and defeated Goliath, which we all know that story. Um, young David 
said, you know, he heard about this Goliath who's threatening, and none of the soldiers were going to go and face Goliath. But David said, no, I have faith that Jesus, that, that God, not Jesus, he wasn't there yet, <laughs> not in person. He said, I have faith that God will give me victory over Goliath. And he did. He went and he conquered Goliath uh, when nobody else would. He was an aide to King Saul, and I said he was best friends with the king's son, so he was kind of part of that, that in crowd. And he was a gifted harpist. He was a gifted poet. He became a distinguished warrior as he served under King Saul. And then he survived a plot on his own life by King Saul. So while he's serving King Saul, you know, Saul finds out that you know, he gets jealous, right? And so he tries to kill, have David killed. Um, so he survives that plot. But the amazing thing about David was he also, after King Saul died, he mourned and avenged King Saul's death. And I think that just takes a big man. You know, here's this man that tried to kill me, but he still felt this loyalty to this man who was, I mean, he was kind of part of their family in a way with Jonathan as his best friend. And it was his king. He served him. And so he mourned him. He avenged King Saul's death. He was courageous. He was politically astute. And he was gifted with discernment. And then he also conquered many lands. When he finally became king, he conquered many lands, and he even brought the Ark of the Covenant to rest in Jerusalem. That is a lot for one man. He was a man after God's own heart. He served the kingdom of Israel, even when that meant that the king before him was trying to kill him. Other than having to go to war and almost being killed by his best friend's dad, his own king, David's life seemed charmed. He seemed like he had it all. He was the ideal, perfect child of God, right? God was with him. He was doing all this amazing stuff. Um, and so he was, he was probably feeling really good, except for when he was trying to, someone was trying to kill him, right? But we all know that nobody is perfect, not even the boy who would one day become Israel's greatest king. Not... One person is perfect, with the exception of Jesus, who is without sin. 99.99999% of the time, not all good people are all good. And not all bad people are all bad. People are complex. They are complicated. Even if you think you know somebody, they might surprise you by what they choose to do or what they choose to say, because we mess up. We respond to things without thinking. We react. I guess that's when you respond without, without thinking. You react instead of taking a step back before doing something or saying something. And we move on autopilot. We don't evaluate ourselves, and we don't reevaluate ourselves. We just move through life. Uh, we get comfortable. And so I think people succumb to the human tendencies that come from being fallen, right? We're a fallen people. We know this. Um, thankfully, we have Jesus. But we know that we, by our nature, just get things wrong. We can't be perfect all the time. And David was not perfect all the time. Even David, who did all of those amazing things, and I'm sure there were many more I didn't list, but those were the, the highlights. Even David succumbed to his power. He had a power trip. 
Now, you may not have realized it, but he was used to being beloved. He was used to being favored. God was on his side. God was protecting him in battle. God was helping him win those battles, right? He was God's man. So he was used to having God ordain all of the things that he was doing. He was living the high life on his throne, quite literally. And it's hard when you, you're used to having everybody love you when all of a sudden you do something wrong and you, don't, you just don't see it. So while David was king, we said he did all these things before and while he was king, but also while he was king, he was conquering lands and he also took the wives and the property of those lands for himself, thus making it so he had lots of wives, which Harris pointed out last week is a recipe for disaster. But that was, it was allowed, right? Back then, that was, that was a thing. Um, so he was still favored by God. He was still living the high life, still, still uh, you know, living high on his throne. But as his power grew and the kingdom of Israel grew, so too did God. King David's head grow. Um, and he was, he was just, I don't want to say he felt prideful, because I don't know what he felt, um, but that's what power can do to you. When everything's going really well, and not just power, but success, when everything's going really well, you just feel really good about yourself. And so sometimes that pride can sneak in, and you do things maybe you shouldn't do. Okay, so it comes time to go to war once again. So we say David's, he's a gifted warrior. He's gone to battle so many times. But at some point, it it's time for him to go to war again. And in, historically, the king would march out into battle leading his troops. But this time, it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel's army. But David remained in Jerusalem in the safety of his own home. It didn't say in the safety of his own home. I added that part. But he remained in the safety of his own home. He sent his troops to battle without him. That's not very king-like. And then, if that's not bad enough, while his troops are out fighting for Israel and giving some of them giving their lives, right, he becomes so complacent in his position with all his success, all of his wives, he stops leading. And then, while they're out in battle, and he's staying behind safe and sound, he has an affair with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who is one of the officers in his army. So I told you, some of these stories in the Old Testament, we don't really like to talk about them, but we have lessons to learn from from what he did or didn't do. So he sees Bathsheba. She's he's up on his roof enjoying his life, right? And he sees this beautiful woman bathing, and he's like, who is that? Bring her to me. And the people that were still, you know, helping in his, in his court or whatever, they were like, well, that is Uriah's wife. He's like, meh, bring her here anyway. And so he has an affair with Bathsheba while Uriah is out fighting a war for him, a war at which he should have been. So you know, you likely you all have heard that story before, right? Even if it's just from the, the little hint of it in uh, Leonard Cohn's Hallelujah, he kind of alludes to that. 
But of course, the story doesn't end there, as if the affair wasn't enough. <clears throat> as a result of the infidelity, Bathsheba gets pregnant. Then, after the men come back from war, David tries to trick Uriah into being with Bathsheba so he could hide his infidelity because she's pregnant. Then, when that doesn't work, he arranges for Uriah's death on the front lines of battle and is successful there. Now, after all that is done, David does marry Bathsheba and she does have the child. It's a very sordid tale. It's like an R-rated Hallmark Channel movie. You know, like, you're rooting for the main characters, right? And through the whole story, you're like, oh, yes, this is amazing. They're so, it's so beautiful. They're, they're so good. And, and it's wholesome, right? Hallmark Channel movies tend to be wholesome. Uh, until, what is it, about an hour and 20 minutes through, there's a plot twist. And you find out something ugly about one of those main characters. And it threatens to destroy everything you were rooting for. That's kind of like this. We have David, and he's like all good and wholesome, and he's, he's a man after God's own heart. And then he does this, right? Like an hour and a half into the story, you're like, oh, man, why did you do this? His, it, so it's the final plot twist. David's ugly affair and the ensuing fallout. And at this point, it also looks more like a soap opera, right? It is a hot mess. This takes us to our scripture for today. So we're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to start with uh, verses 1 through 4. So right before this, it says David marries, Beth marries Bathsheba, and she has this baby. Okay, so that's where our story is. And our scripture says this, 1 through 4. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, I'm going to stop here. What a strange story. It's inserted into this historical narrative, you know, and so it, I'm sure David's imagining that Nathan, who is a prophet during King David's reign, and his friend, um, you know, think about when the friend comes over, all this stuff's happened in your life. A friend comes over, you sit down, and you're just telling stories. So David's hearing this story, and um, he thinks it's real. And we're going to get to that in a second. But it's a parable. Nathan's telling him a parable. So Nathan, as a prophet, is guiding David, he is instructing, he is delivering God's message to David, right? God is talking through Nathan. He's like, Nathan's like, this is, this is the story, you know, wow. It's a strange story. This man, this rich man takes 
the poor man's only lamb and sacrifices it, when he has all these other lambs he could have sacrificed, but he didn't want to give them up. He wasn't willing, and so he stole from the poor man. So I think David did. I think David thought Nathan's telling him this story about somebody in town, um, however you want to phrase that. Uh, and then David responds to Nathan's story. So, I mean, did you think that it was a real story? As you're reading, you think, oh, this is historical. Because it sounds like it since it's part of the historical narrative. So then we go to uh, verses 5 and 6. So this is how David responds to it. Because David doesn't, David thinks it's a real story. It says, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David is righteously indignant. He is angry. He cannot believe that somebody would do that. How dare he steal from somebody who has less than him? And so he proposes a punishment. Death and restoration as commanded in Exodus. David's a man of God. He knows what the prescribed punishments are. And in Exodus, that is what happens. You, are, you die, you restore fourfold. And so this is what David prescribes. And, you know, honestly, if you were to hear this story and you didn't know it was a parable, how would you react? Like, pretend you're scrolling through Facebook and you see something sorted. We are the first to cast judgment. It is our first reaction. Because remember, I said, as people, we react and don't think before we speak uh, or even judge in our own hearts. We're the first to catch, cast judgment, just like David was the first. He says, oh, he needs to die. How dare he? How dare he? And then we move on to verses 7 through 12. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. You are the man. Can you imagine how surprised David must have been since he thought he was, Nathan was probably just gossiping about somebody in town? You know, Nathan, David's like, oh gosh, how dare this person? And then Nathan's like, I'm talking about you, buddy. What? David, who's been so good. David, who's accomplished so much. David, who did all of this other stuff in the name of God, has deluded himself. He became so complacent, so comfortable 
that he didn't even realize what he was doing was wrong. He had gone too far. We see that today with people who have power, right, in our world. They go too far. You see it with politicians. You see it with megachurch pastors. Like, sometimes they just, they get so built up, they don't realize until they've gone too far. But David wasn't even realizing it. He had to have a friend pointed out to him. Never even crossed his mind. He couldn't see what was right in front of him until Nathan punched him in the gut. Not literally, but he punched him in the gut. Like I said earlier, people are complicated. People are multifaceted, and even the greatest king of Israel needed someone to hold him accountable. No self-reflection. He had no awareness that he could do anything that would displease God at this point. And not only did he, he do it, but he sought it out. You know, somebody warned him and said, this is his wife. But he's, he still sought out that sin. And it turned him into a hypocrite. So Nathan is delivering God's judgment to David in those verses. I mean, how do you think David felt at that point? Because when he thought it was about this rich man, he wanted him to die, right? But now he's like, oh, it's me. But I'll tell you what David said and how he responded. In verse 13, the final verse, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I have sinned against the Lord. That could have gone so many different ways. Right? But he repents. He He's called out by his friend and prophet. And he's like, you're right. I have sinned. I did wrong. I'm sorry. It's important because David hears Nathan. Like, really hears him in his heart. How many times do people tell us something, but we don't really hear it, right? You hear it in your ear. You listen, but you don't hear it. You don't feel it. David is personally convicted. And it's not out of guilt, but out of a relief and a hope that comes from being a beloved child of God. He accepts his punishment. In those few words, I have sinned against the Lord. He knows the punishment he should have. He knows that what he did wrong deserves something specific. But the amazing thing is then, on top of that, is that God responds favorably to David. David's not going to die, but he will still be punished. Unlike Saul, who came before him, so Saul, part of King Saul's problem is he didn't listen when he was advised. He didn't learn from his mistakes. He was jealous, even though God had, he had been anointed. You know, he had been anointed to be king, but he couldn't trust and hold on to that, that favor from God. He, so he was jealous. He was always worried. Something was going to happen. Someone was going to take it from him. Saul even had Samuel brought back from the dead 
because he was so worried because his favor had fall, God's favor had fallen from him because he wasn't listening, wasn't doing what he was told to do. It was so bad that he had a medium bring Samuel back from the dead to try to help him fix it. And Samuel's like, mm-mm, it's done. Why did you call me out of my slumber? He responds, and then after Samuel tells him, no, I can't help you, David is going to be king now. He responds in fear, and he wants to give up, but he, and he never repents. Like, you don't, you don't see that from Saul when this happens. It says he responds in fear. He won't eat. He won't drink. I mean, he feels guilty, but guilty is not the same thing as repentance. He feels guilty, and it stunts him. His servants end up making him eat, um, but he's just afraid. And that's not what God wants from his people. He doesn't want our, his people to be afraid of him and the punishment. He doesn't want people to feel guilty because that's different than repenting and turning back to God. It's a subtle difference, but it is different. What makes David different is not that he messed up, right? Because we all mess up. Everybody messes up. What makes him different is that after he messed up, he repented. Uh, most of you, you should be familiar with Psalm 51. We sing a portion of it um, during Lent. So Psalm 51, this is a psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by Nathan. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me in a willing spirit. David admitted his sin. David accepted whatever punishment God was going to give him. And that takes integrity. Did he mess up? Sure. But he took responsibility for the mistakes he made. And it all came down to what was in his heart. David had a good heart. You know, you talk about what motivates somebody to do something. If they do something bad, and it came from a good place. I mean, they, they still did something bad, right? But at least you know that they didn't, their intentions were not evil. David did not have evil intentions. He had a good heart. And even in his sin, he remains faithful to God. And because of his faithfulness, because of his repentance, he continued on as king, leading his people once again into battle, rather than staying home in safety. He, he rose back up to, his, to the challenge that he was anointed for. And what's more, not only did he get to still be king, unlike Saul, but from him descends the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Savior Jesus Christ. Like the rich man in Nathan's parable, like David, all, like all who sin in the sight of the Lord, we too deserve harsh punishment. We too deserve death. But as we study about how God forged his people we see the characteristics that he made in those people, the ones that ultimately lead us to where we are today.
a people who have been spared, just as David was spared, a people whom God not only no longer punishes because of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, but people who have been given eternal life from God in his abundant grace. And we see that as we are forged in faith, we take on those characteristics that define God's people. We can have the faith and the integrity of David. We can be the people that are after God's own heart because as God's children, we too are beloved by him. But it's hard sometimes. We don't like to be held accountable. We don't like to be called out for the things that we do wrong. Um, I was watching this show the other day called Sweet Magnolia, and one of the main characters, she was getting back together with this love of her life, and uh, she had to let go of another guy that she had been seeing because of that. And one of her friends says, but are you, it wasn't, it wasn't working. Okay, I'll just, spoiler alert. It wasn't really working with the love of her life. They were trying really hard. And one of her friends, uh, she says to her, she says, but are you happy? And, and the woman says, how dare you? And she's like, I'm just asking a question. Like, either you're happy and I'm happy for you, or you're not happy and maybe you need to make different, a different choice. And of course, you know, it, women. So they didn't talk for a few days, and then they had to make up uh, because Sweet Magnolia is a little bit hallmarky. Um, but, you know, we don't like to be called out by our friends. It puts us on our, on our guard. It, it makes us try to defend ourselves. And her friend's intentions were good. Her, friends just, her friend just wanted to make sure that she was choosing right and that she was happy. And I know not Sometimes we have to do things that don't make us happy. But in that, you don't choose a man if, he, if you're not happy in that relationship, if it's not good. David was newly married, and Nathan comes out of nowhere, and he could have tried to defend his actions, but he didn't. We all need somebody like Nathan in our lives. We all need somebody who will help hold us accountable or just ask us that question, why are you doing this? Does that make you happy? What's going on? We need those people. Or, so, and then, so even after you, let's say you hear the person and you're like, okay, I'm good. I hear you. Thank you for calling me out. Then you have to accept the punishment like David did. And we don't like that either. I mean, if you've ever tried to ground a child for doing something wrong, even if they were caught red-handed, they're usually going to balk at the punishment. No, you can't ground me. You can't take my phone for a week. My life is over. And, you know, it's the rare occasion when your child will say, no, you're right, here's my phone. That's hap it happens once in a while. They'll say, mm, here you go. That's when you know they really hear you and hear that what they did. And you can tell they're repentant, right? They, they feel sorry because they're willing to accept the learning punishment that you give them. So sometimes we're more like Saul and we fear cripples us and we don't learn and we don't evolve. Sometimes we're like David before Nathan makes him look in the mirror and we're blind to our own transgressions. But like David, we can be receptive to feedback and we can choose to turn back to God and to repent of our sins. And that's not meant to make us feel guilty but to straighten our paths. You know, some people will say they don't like to go to church because they feel guilty when they leave. 
I get it. Nobody likes to hear the things they're doing wrong. But the reason that we are called out is that so that we can be better. It's not to make us feel guilty. And that's hard. I told you, it's, it's a subtle difference. We can be forged into people with repentant hearts who, as people of God, play a role in the future of the kingdom of God. And I think that's amazing. I think if we repent and if we, we continue to have faith and trust in our Lord, we can continue to play out that story that he has planned for us from the beginning of time. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.